Hi, I'm Gail Trotter, host of Right in DC. I'm a liberty-loving, tyranny-hating lawyer based in your nation's capital, Washington, DC. My goal is to keep you informed and to be your advocate in Washington, DC. Please subscribe to this podcast, subscribe to my YouTube channel, The Gail Trotter Show. You can like me on Facebook, you can follow me on Twitter, you can like me on Instagram, Also, you can go to my website, gailtrotter.com, and send me any comments on anything that you would like me to cover in the future if you have any feedback on today's episode. So I'm so excited to be talking with you. As I have shared a few times, I am working on a book about our Bill of Rights, and it seems like this time is just perfect because there is so much going on with our Bill of Rights right now because of the pandemic, because of the political and social unrest that we've seen in the last 12 months. And when you zero in on two of the most important fundamental rights that we have, they are protected by our Bill of Rights and our Constitution. That's the First Amendment, which has our free exercise of religion, free speech, the right to petition the government. And you have the Second Amendment, that's the right to keep and bear arms. And I want to share with you a few things that caught my eye this week to inform you about them, give you my feedback on these developments, and I'd like to hear back from you what you think about these news items. First is an article talking about Montana Governor Greg Gianforte signs a bill protecting the Second Amendment rights from new federal regulations. And I've talked about this on previous podcasts and YouTube episodes. There was this move across the country to create Second Amendment sanctuary cities. And you might be familiar of a sanctuary, the idea of sanctuary, particularly from movies like The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and the idea that there's a place that you can go and you can be safe. And this concept has been used by both sides of the political divide. Uh, You might remember that some liberal leftist cities declared their cities uh, immigration sanctuary cities, trying to protect people from the enforcement of federal immigration laws. And we saw similar ideas with the enforcement of federal gun laws. Many cities and states didn't want the federal drug laws enforced, so they declared themselves not subject to enforcement of these federal laws, that the states were not going to enforce the federal laws. So we saw this idea that many uh, cities and counties and states decided that they wanted to try and protect citizens' Second Amendment rights despite the overreach of the federal government. So we have another example of this in Montana where the uh, governor signed a bill to protect Second Amendment rights from enforcement by the Montana government. So I'll read from the article. The Associated Press reports that the new law, quote, prohibits state and local law enforcement in Montana from enforcing federal bans on firearms, ammunition, and magazines. And the article goes on to say that Oklahoma has also passed legislation declaring the state a Second Amendment sanctuary state, and it's headed for the governor's desk. 
Same with Nebraska. Governor Pete Ricketts declared Nebraska a Second Amendment sanctuary state on April 14, 2021. And earlier in April, Governor Doug Ducey signed legislation prohibiting the enforcement of new federal gun control in Arizona. So that's a lot of states that are saying that the federal gun laws are going too far and they are not addressing the issues of gun violence and gun pre- gun violence prevention, but instead they're taking away firearms from the sane and the law-abiding, just the people that you want to have access to these defense items. So then there's another article that caught my eye in the Texas Tribune. The title said, Texas Republicans are vowing to defy any new federal gun rules. Experts say it's largely a symbolic gesture. So you see that this is not just a concept with a couple of states. It's really starting to spread and to build. So you saw more of the sanctuary counties and cities happening at the lower level, the local level. But now it's really burgeoning up to the state level. And I think that's because... As you know, and we covered a couple weeks ago, President Biden released some executive orders on federal gun control, and he has certainly made it a signature part of his administration's push to take guns away from the law abiding and the sane. And I have mentioned this point before, but uh, Texas Senator Ted Cruz uh, years ago pointed out how the Obama administration, which Joe Biden was vice president of and, you know, should bear some responsibility for things that went on uh, for the good and for the bad in the Obama administration. They were not punishing, they were not prosecuting people who lied on the federal background check. So here, the Democrats and the left and liberals are pushing for more laws to regulate people and yet they weren't enforcing the laws that were already on the books. And you know, there are over 20,000 gun laws on the books already. And for some reason, the left likes to pass a lot of gun laws, but they want to use selective enforcement on who they go after for violations. And a lot of times they don't prosecute the worst offenders, the people who make Chicago the dangerous place that it is. So back to this article from the Texas Tribune, Uh, the subtitle is the push to steal Texas against new federal rules comes as gun violence nationwide, including a recent shooting in Bryan, has sparked Democrats to call for an assault weapons ban and stronger background checks, among other changes. And the article goes into how Legal experts are saying that the move to do this sanctuary state, Second Amendment sanctuary state, is largely symbolic, and it doesn't really affect whether or not you can be prosecuted for violating federal gun laws. But essentially, it's saying that Texas is not going to help the feds enforce these laws. So while you have the White House calling for an assault weapons ban and stronger, more comprehensive background checks, even interpersonal family types of transfers, you have the the state of Texas saying that we're not going to stand for this. And as uh, Governor Abbott said, quote, we need to erect a complete barrier against any government official anywhere from treading on gun rights in Texas. Now, Governor Abbott said this during his annual state of address. 
State of the State Address in February. And this article says that if this Second Amendment sanctuary state legislation passes, Texas would join Alaska, Idaho, Kansas, Wyoming, and Arizona, along with more than 400 local governments in at least 20 states in declaring themselves sanctuaries for gun rights. And essentially, um, what they, this article talked to a University of Texas School of Law professor, Sanford Levinson, who said, essentially, what the sanctuary law is saying is that the state is saying to the federal officials, if you want to enforce these laws, do it yourself. And it makes a lot of sense that uh, in passing this law, you're making it harder for the federal government to enforce the law because there's not a cooperation or assistance from the state or local government agencies. And it's very interesting, too, because there is another bill in Texas saying that Texas state and local governments would be prohibited from enforcing or providing assistance to federal agencies on certain federal gun regulations that do not exist under state law, such as registry, license, and background check requirements and programs that would confiscate guns or require people to sell them. And so when you think about that, uh, it is not only saying that certain localities in Texas wouldn't be cooperating with the federal government, but it's also saying a city like Austin couldn't help the federal government enforce these laws without having some sort of financial penalty or another type of penalty uh, for doing that. So it's very interesting, the Texas Officials who are supporting this bill said that it's essentially, quote, essentially freezing in place state gun laws. And they admit that they, quote, cannot control what the federal government does, but, quote, we're just trying to say that anything further that restricts our or erodes our rights, we will not stand for. Now, the interesting thing about this, and the article goes into, is whether or not this would withstand scrutiny by the courts. And Levinson, that UT professor I mentioned earlier from the article, mentioned a 1992 U.S. Supreme Court decision that said that federal government can't commandeer state officials to enforce federal law. And you might remember that was a big deal with the immigration law, too. There was a lot of fighting back and forth with the Trump administration and places like California that did not want to cooperate to send back violent criminals or help the federal government to deport them. So you can see the contrast between what the left wants to do, which is to continue to allow violent felons not to be deported back out of the United States where they can't harm any American citizens anymore. And what the right is trying to do by trying to protect people's gun rights so they can continue to provide self-defense for themselves, their families, and any vulnerable members of the community. And this article goes on to talk about how Biden is pushing these executive actions to supposedly prevent gun violence, of which there is no evidence of that. And in fact, I don't know if you recall this or not, but there was a study done of the 1994 assault the so-called assault weapons ban that showed that it did not cause a reduction in gun violence. So the the very 
piece of legislation that the left is pushing again because they have no new ideas was already shown to not reduce gun violence. Now, um, Biden, I think this is really important to zone in on the language that the left uses to try and defeat Second Amendment rights. So when Biden released his executive orders, he gave a public speech and he called gun violence an epidemic. So epidemic makes you think it's a medical problem. And he also called it an international embarrassment. So he's trying to get the pride factor in there as well. But when you're talking about an epidemic and you're talking about being a medical issue, it fits into that characterization by the left of gun violence being a public health crisis, which is where they're trying to message and change the way, the frame that people think of their individual right to defend themselves with firearms, to change it completely around and saying that that is the public health epidemic, the public health threat. And that is why they're going after things like trying to pass red flag laws across the country, which there have been a lot of problems with this in terms of due process, which is another important right under our Bill of Rights and under our Constitution. And so uh, when you think about what is happening in Texas and these other states, is, is it going to be enough to stem the tide that the left is trying to use the advantage of having control of the White House and having control of the Congress to pass new gun legislation, even though, as I said, new legislation doesn't show that there's a reduction in crime. And there's a great cost to it because there have been studies that have shown that there are more than 2 million defensive gun uses a year. And the left never wants to talk about that. They don't want to talk about the fact that when you make guns more difficult for law-abiding, insane people to obtain, and you increase the registration fees and the, the transaction costs and the time involved to do it, then you are reducing the number of defensive gun uses that will happen during that year. So I want to go back to this other point about messaging. There is an article that I just think is so outrageous in Politico that I want to share with you and get your feedback on and see if you have the same reactions to it that I do. The title of it is Why Gun Control is Now a Matter of National Security. Biden should seize on the rise of far-right militias to make an urgent new case for action. So this author is not happy with the public health threat idea of gun control, of gun violence. He's not happy with the idea of the gun violence being a national embarrassment. No, he wants to reframe it as national security. And I think that's partially because he believes that he will be able to get more independence on board with this people who are concerned about national security and maybe haven't thought about gun control in this light. And if they think about it this way, then maybe they will be persuadable on the laws that the left wants to pass. 
So he starts off with the with the hypothesis, and you can just see the frustration dripping through the text of this opinion piece. For all the tragic mass shooting headlines this year, the American gun control debate seems permanently stuck, end quote. So he is seeing this as a frustrating position to be in. And he agrees with Biden that the level of gun violence is a, quote, national embarrassment. But then he swings to trying to say that our Second Amendment rights are a national security threat. And he's saying, we see a new threat rising. And the threat that this author sees is the, quote, growing and heavily armed American militia movement, which made a show of force on January 6th. And then he goes on to say, increasingly as militias acquire and stockpile weapons, they're turning guns from a public health concern into a threat to national security. So there it is right there. He's giving it away. He's saying, okay, the public health concern is not working. We're not getting people on our side. We're permanently stuck. We're not going to be able to get more legislation that we want to take away people's Second Amendment rights. So we're going to try this new frame on the entire argument, the debate. We're going to say it's a threat to national security. So then he goes on adding to this, uh, this thesis that he has. Quote, and it's possible that if proponents of reform, including advocacy groups, congressional leaders, and Biden began addressing it that way, they'd have a chance of energizing the debate against the NRA and its allies. Indeed, the shock of the insurrection has increased the political burdens of an NRA in internal disarray and offered a new perspective on the need for significant gun control legislation, end quote. So just as a little side note, for any of those who were paying attention to the riot that happened at Capitol Hill on January 6th, there was just released news that the Capitol Police officer that they, the media and the Democrats had all alleged had been beaten to death with a fire extinguisher by a insurrectionist, as they like to call them, died of natural causes. So the only person who was a victim of homicide during, or murder, whatever you want to call it, um, who was a victim of gun violence at the riot on January 6th at Capitol Hill was one of the women who was a Trump supporter, Ashley Babbitt. And so it's very interesting to me that this article is trying to make this large point about uh, the violence of this these certain groups that this author wants to point out. And the signature example that he's trying to use is one where not a single shot was fired by anyone who broke into the into Capitol Hill on January 6th. And of course, notice that he's not talking about BLM or Antifa or all the rioting and the murders and the destruction and the looting and the arson that we saw that happened particularly last summer that was very 
uh, costly in terms of human life and in terms of businesses and in terms of our general spirit of unity in our country, he doesn't really address that. Instead, he's trying to talk about this January 6th riot where he says, quote, anti-government militia groups are more than willing to jump walls, break doors, and disrupt the underpinnings of our democracy, end quote. And he's essentially saying that if they are able to carry around weapons, then that will inspire and mobilize insurrection. And yet, I think a huge failing of this author's article is that he doesn't address all the violence and the destruction by BLM and Antifa and people associated with those groups. It is a gross, gross uh, failure to address that. So then he talks about Biden's executive orders, and he's not happy that they are so weak. He thinks he calls them thin gruel, essentially saying there's no meat to these executive orders. And he's trying to persuade the reframing of this issue. In fact, I'll quote what he says, quote, but reframing the issue as a national security imperative could galvanize passive backers now focused by the assault on the Capitol on maintaining political stability in the United States, end quote. So think about that. He is talking about limiting law-abiding, insane Americans' Second Amendment rights by using a political issue as justification for increased regulation and confiscation and all sorts of things that are on the wish list of the left. So I can't think of any rationale that is more inimical to our Bill of Rights than saying, for political reasons, we should take away the gun rights of American citizens. So he is continuing in this piece to talk about, quote, recasting gun control as a national security challenge. And he does say black citizens arm themselves in self-defense he, of course, blames it on Trump because, you know, the left always blames Trump first, just as the left always blames America first. Uh, but he, he doesn't really go into that. He's not really that interested in talking about that. And instead, he cites the, uh, the lone wolf terrorist in New Zealand, I won't say his name, and calls him an Islamophobic white supremacist, even though some of the some of the reporting I read at the time that I guess has been whitewashed was that uh, he was an eco fascist and he was very concerned about damage to the environment. And um, so I, I don't know all the details of that situation, but that was in New Zealand, not America. So I don't think it's really relevant here. And then he also invokes Timothy McVeigh. And for a lot of people who are younger, they might not recognize that name, but he is was an evil person who blew up the Oklahoma City government building, not with firearms, but with firepower of a bomb, with, you know, being a, I think it was nitric fertilizer. And so also completely not relevant to this discussion. Then this author in this opinion piece goes on to bring up the 
IRA. And then he can't even give credit to any political opinion besides his own. And he says, unlike, I'm quoting, unlike contemporary American militias, of course, Irish Republicans had at least partially legitimate historically based grievances, end quote. So I really want to drive this home with you right now. What this author is saying in this political piece is essentially saying because of his political concerns and based on political views that we should take guns and gun rights away from law-abiding and sane American citizens. It is the I think it's the most outrageous thing I've read this whole year. I I just can't even believe that he was willing to put this out here and sign his name to it. And of course, he takes a swipe in the article about saying that anyone who thinks that there is a liberal deep state is basically smoking something. And of course, anybody who's lived in D.C. for any amount of time understands that the entrenched government in D.C. is liberal. It, it would takes you about 10 minutes to discover that if you come and have any interactions in Washington, D.C. And particularly if you look at what happened during the Trump administration, why he was not able to accomplish, he accomplished a lot, but why he was not able to accomplish even more was because he totally had everybody working against him in all the agencies. And so you're hearing now all the time about how President Biden and his administration have returned competency and they've returned productivity and efficiency. Well, that's because the people in the agencies support the Democrats, support the Democrat Party, and they support uh, President Biden's agenda. So they're working with him again, instead of against him. Not everyone in the federal government is liberal, but it certainly leans that way heavily. So let me give you another example from this putrid piece in Politico. Quote, to many Americans, and especially these Americans, firearms are exalted as symbols of liberty and patriotism. Can you imagine thinking that Firearms being exalted as symbols of liberty and patriotism is a bad thing. It is just astonishing that he can put this out here in the public. So then he goes on to say, quote, the high level of gun ownership, the ease of purchasing more weapons and Second Amendment absolutism only amplify the risks such attitudes pose to the stability of the republic, end quote. I can't believe he would even write Second Amendment absolutism in here. Two reasons. First, as I said, we already have over 20,000 gun laws on the books. And secondly, the Democrats don't like to prosecute crime and they don't like to prosecute violent fe felons. And they're the guys always trying to get people off death row. And you read these stories of um, the crimes that the people on death row committed and it's just horrifying. I mean, it's worse than the worst fiction that you can imagine. So to talk about this in such a way is just really outrageous. And then he finalizes the um, 
this part of his piece talking about how, quote, the election of a Democratic president had already caused gun purchases to surge, a trend that has followed such elections over the past several decades, end quote. I guess he's not familiar with economics and the idea of the law of supply and demand. The Democrats make it part of their platform that they're going to reduce access to firearms. And I used to say that President Obama was the best gun salesman, but now it looks like President Biden is going to be the best gun salesman. I think in part because he is president during a pandemic and he is a, a president when the um, rate of homicides in big cities is skyrocketing. And we see that there's not a lot of prosecution for many of these rioting crimes and destruction of businesses. And I think he's going to continue to be the best gun salesman. So continuing this, this article, um, he also talks about how the people he doesn't like, it's their incendiary, often seditious rhetoric, turbocharged by the internet as the lawful exercise of free speech. And then essentially these people are upset about the red flag laws permitting law enforcement officers to seize firearms for those judged to be public safety risks has only fueled their anti-government fervor. Here he's doubling down on it. So it's not enough that they're going after our Second Amendment rights, but he's saying essentially we're not going to respect free speech either. So if you say something that according to a government official is incendiary or seditious rhetoric, then we're going to take away your Second Amendment rights. So they're really anti-Bill of Rights. They're against the First Amendment. They're against the Second Amendment. Unless you agree with them, then maybe they'll let you have your First Amendment rights. But if you disagree with them, then you're incendiary and you're seditious. And I just think, how did these people have the ability to write this piece in the Politico with absolutely no understanding of our system of government and understanding about why the First and the Second Amendments are so very important. So then he goes on to say, quote, large-scale large confiscation and de-radicalization are not realistic prospects in the near future. If the president wants to follow through on his desire to rebuild American democracy, a push to curb gun violence offers an invaluable opportunity and a potentially persuasive argument. So this guy is sad that we're not going to have large-scale confiscation and de-radicalization. Does he know how many millions of guns that we that are owned by private individuals across the country? And for some reason, there's not a tremendous amount of gun violence in in certain communities. And instead, we see a lot of it concentrated in places that have very strict gun laws. So perhaps it is not the strict gun laws that are preventing violence. Perhaps it is other factors that I'll get into a little bit later in this discussion. So when um, he also goes on to say, this administration's message to garden variety firearms enthusiasts should be, don't let seditious radicals imperil your access to the guns you cherish. Protect your hobby by backing enforcement, hunting, recreational shooting, and personal defense against criminal threats are all fine. 
anti-government, white supremacist, militia activity is not. So of course you always have to call people racist because that is what is going on in this country right now. But get this, this is essentially saying, let me read this again. Don't let seditious radicals imperil your access to the guns you cherish. Protect your hobby by backing enforcement. If that isn't a threat, I don't know what is. They're saying, if you guys want to keep your Second Amendment rights, you better support what we're doing. You better help us crack down on our political opponents. Otherwise, you're going to lose your Second Amendment rights, too. He goes on to say, quote, in a deeply divided society and a political sphere in which threats of violence have become part and parcel of political discourse, combat rifles can do tremendous damage to social cohesion. Wow. So it's just the firearms that do tremendous damage to social cohesion, not the rioting, the arson, the hurting of elderly gentlemen, the threats, the harassment of people. We're not going to mention that. We're just going to talk about the presence of rifles, which he calls combat rifles. And I will repeat myself, no self-respecting soldier would carry those weapons on a battlefield unless everything else was gone and he had a choice between that and throwing a chair at someone. So I think it is really outrageous that this gentleman wrote this piece in Politico and I would love to hear your feedback on it. So then I wanna go to the third thing item that I wanna share with you today which was a really good piece written by my friend Christopher Hull, and it's called The Definition of Insanity Regarding Mass Murder, which is a very clever title. This piece was in the Epic Times, and it essentially is making the point that we're focusing on the wrong thing. Gun control, more gun control, supposed gun control, really just regulation and taking away gun rights from the sane and the law abiding, that's not gonna help us. Let's look at other causes. Why do we have a mass murder problem? Why do we have a gun violence problem? And he makes the the argument in this piece that it's because we disinstitutionalized uh, people who had massive psychiatric issues. And when more people who had serious, debilitating mental illness issues were in institutions and required to be kept in institutions, we had less gun violence. And he starts off talking about Atlanta. He talks about on March 16th, uh, this guy killed eight people in the Atlanta metro area. He told public officials that he was a sex addict. When police arrested him, he was on his way to Florida to shoot up the porn industry. And yet, of course, the media coverage after this was talking about how it, he was a white supremacist. And that was the threat that he posed and the Democrats had the same talking points and you heard it over and over again. So it was white supremacy. And then Representative Ted Lieu blamed Trump for discussing the CCP virus that somehow that created this crazy person's desire to go shoot, I think it was six uh, Korean Americans and two white people. And yet, Chris points out that the mainstream media decided to ignore the facts. And he goes into how uh, this is 
just really an excuse that they want to take away your guns. So they're trying to shift the blame away from mental illness and sex addiction and point it to Trump being at fault, white supremacy being at fault, and the ubiquity of access to guns. He goes into the real story, so I commend this article to you to read the whole thing. Um, From 1960 to 1964, there were no mass shootings at all in the United States, none. And then the 1960s, he talks about how there was a push by the left to deinstitutionalize people from the insane asylums, and the ACLU pushed and pushed until the Supreme Court ruled that states could not confine a non-dangerous individual who can survive on his own or with help. But the question was, who defines who is non-dangerous? And then he goes through how there were nine in 10 mental patients were let out of the asylums. In 1955, the state psychiatric hospitals held almost 600,000 mentally ill patients. And by 2010, those hospitals' entire capacity had dropped to less than 10% of that figure. And you figure there's also increased population. So the people who in the 1950s would have qualified for an institution would have been much greater. And Chris writes, like clockwork, mass killings began to rise. He cites a recent U.S. Secret Service study found 25% of mass killers had been hospitalized for psychiatric treatment or prescribed psychiatric medication before their attacks. 32% were actually psychotic. A towering 64% of the attackers experienced mental health symptoms prior to their attack. And a study of mass shooters by the far-left Mother Jones found that a majority were mentally ill and many displayed signs of it before setting out to kill. And one observer said that the Los Angeles County Jail has become the largest de facto psychiatric inpatient facility in the U.S., and New York Rikers Island is the second. So instead of having people who were seriously mentally ill and dangerous in institutions, they have become the prison population. They have switched from the mental institutions to the prisons. And if you look at some of the most infamous uh, mass shooters, including the Virginia Tech shooter, uh, he was severely mentally ill. The guy who shot up six people in Tucson in 2011 He was a diagnosed schizophrenic, probably the movie theater shooter in 2012, and uh, definitely the horrible person who shot up uh, Sandy Hook Elementary School. Everyone agrees he was mentally ill. So this is all an effort to take away your guns, to take away your Second Amendment rights, And Chris makes a point, instead of more gun control, here's a novel idea, which President Trump was panned for saying, why don't we stop the ACLU from keeping so many violent maniacs in our midst? That is, to stop mass killings, why not lock up maniacal murderers rather than taking sane people's guns? And he says, you don't have to be an Einstein to see this. 
So this is a really excellent piece that I commend for you to read, and I think these are the key takeaways. You've got states, local, and uh, county jurisdictions trying to hold the line on Second Amendment rights. You have the guy who wrote the Politico piece trying to change the nature of the debate from reduce gun violence, from it's a public health uh, it's a public health crisis to it's a national security threat, hoping that they'll be able to pull more people. But in his piece, he really gives away that he's trying to punish uh, unpopular political views and unpopular political speech. And I think that should be very disturbing to everyone, not just for Second Amendment reasons, but also for First Amendment reasons. And then Christopher Hull has this great piece talking about looking at the root cause of the gun violence and particularly the mass shootings, which are always used by the left to try and push new gun control regulations. So I hope this was informative to you. These were the things that got my attention and got me stirred up this week. And I'd love to have your feedback. As I mentioned, you can follow me on Facebook. You can like me on Instagram. You can subscribe to this podcast. You can subscribe to my YouTube show, The Gail Trotter Show. You can go to my website, gailtrotter.com. Leave me a comment. I read them all. And I appreciate so much your time. And thank you very much. And I hope that you will continue to push for our precious, precious rights under our Bill of Rights. We all need to be courageous during these times because they, these are the times that try men's souls. But I am bullish on the American experiment, and I hope that I give you some encouragement and I continue to be your advocate in Washington, D.C.